Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything healthcare and technology. I'm your host, James Somaru, and this is your weekly Sunday session. Hey everybody, hope you're having a wonderful week this week. So much like last week when I spoke to Giles Morrison, this is another 10 or 15 minute chat that ended up being much longer because it was so interesting and so cool. So my guest is Dilraj Kalsi, and he is a doctor, academic, and an entrepreneur. He trained at the University of Oxford, where he continues to publish with colleagues about patient empowerment. He's a lecturer in digital health at the University of Warwick, and he uses lifestyle medicine to help patients reverse disease in his online clinic, Hippocrates Lounge. Now, 80% of health outcomes are due to health behaviors, socioeconomic background, and physical environment. So a very small percentage is actually due to clinical care, but it's because of that that Dilraj has such a focus on improving that for everybody that he sees through Hippocrates Lounge, but also more generally and the effect that he wants to have on the world. So he says he's focused on health at work and time and again, he's found that wellbeing programs lack the outcome metrics expected in the medical and business world. So using lifestyle, behavioral and digital health, he's trying to usher in this new era of preventative healthcare. Dilraj and I had a really awesome chat about all of this and how this relates to health tech, the kind of tech that he sees himself using and how he views Hippocrates Lounge in, in, in tech terms and health tech terms. And we talked about health tech in the context of things like the social dilemma, you know, why do you need a phone to help you do meditation? Something that people have doing for thousands of years, but it is actually an enabler. And we talked about that. You know, at one point we even pondered the question, when does health tech just become healthcare? It seems that we use technology in every other facet of our lives without calling it a specific avenue of technology necessarily. So I do just wonder when uh, when AI machine learning or in fact just good IT just becomes good healthcare. But anyway, we talk all about this stuff. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Oh, and just before we jump into that chat, you can head over to the description of this episode and in there you will find the link to the latest Health Tech Pigeon, which for those of you that don't know, is my new weekly, well, I suppose not so new anymore, but my weekly newsletter that tells you the download of what's going on in health tech. So this week you can see a $35 million raise from an AI-powered hearing aid company called Whisper. You can see uh, Venus Williams talking about health tech startups and her opinion on that stuff. Angel investment is actually down in the UK due to the pandemic. You can read about that. You can read about digital pharmacy startup Medino raising 5.6 million and a BMJ paper called AI versus Clinicians, which was awarded paper of the year. A couple of podcasts in there, obviously this one and uh, a different one called Medicine and the Machine. Everybody gets lonely. So uh, the 19th Surgeon General of the US is uh, on that podcast. You can have a look at that. There's some funding opportunities there for startups. So anyway, head over to the description of the episode, check out Health Tech Pigeon. And now over to the conversation with me and Dilraj. Dilraj, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? Really good. Thank you. Excited to be here and to see where our conversation takes us today. Me too, mate. And thank you very much for reaching out. You you sent me probably the, the, the most glorious email that I just could not say no to. Not that we've met before or anything like that, but you outlined your experience in digital health and health tech and your opinions on various bits and bobs and told me all these things that we can talk about. So it really meant that I've got to do pretty much no work other than read your email out if I'm struggling for a question, mate. So <laughs> I, think, I think this is just going to be an, a really easy episode for us to do. And uh, the quick chat that we just had, I know this is going to be a good one. So um, as you know, the way that we start the... Well, actually, no, let's do this. Where, where are you speaking to us from today, Bill Raj? Reading. Uh, so yeah, for those of you who don't know, if it's an international audience, it's 30 minutes west of London. And actually quite near me, Red, well, I say near, near-ish me in, uh, in my, my new abode in Weybridge. Um, so yeah, listen, the way we start this podcast, as you know, is that we get people to tell their story, mate. And so I'm just as intrigued as the audience this time. So why don't you tell us all about it? Yeah, um, feel free to interject if it ends up elongating a little <laughs> bit. But, um, but I think it's, it's always interesting to explore stories in the context of health tech, because like you and I were just talking about prior to the call, it's not a well-trodden path. So I'd say I kind of went through, I went through med school at Oxford, 
with a lot of good intentions in terms of trying to figure out what, what the longer term plan was. I would always email people that were doing things that sounded kind of interesting, try and spark up conversations, see if there were projects I could get involved in. And so with that, I found a natural tendency towards this, this world that could be merging health and technology because all of the technology I saw in the hospitals where I was working just felt inadequate despite best efforts. Uh, and it felt that there was this disconnect between what that was able to do for clinicians and, and that wasn't enough. Um, but also if there's that disconnect there, then what, what's it really doing for patients yet? Um, and so with that, I got more and more curious over time. I actually spent my medical elective in the States talking to several innovators. I had over 70 meetings with people in the kind of startup space there, accelerators, companies, what have you, just to get an understanding of what that world is really like, where most of that innovation is occurring. Um, I also did a biodesign fellowship while I was there. So that was all it was based on a course at Stanford do, which is taking that whole user-centered design thinking specifically to health. So that really opened my eyes to how, how you need to think about people's needs first in the context of anything you're trying to create or innovate with. Um, so there are a few interesting experiences there. And then I also even kind of did a, did a health internship with McKinsey at the time. And that gave me a sense of what's going on at systemic level and how you can approach those sorts of problems rather than just what's on the ground. So all of those sorts of things are happening at med school, particularly towards my end of, the end of my time there. Um, but also on a personal level, my mum was diagnosed with a condition called rheumatoid arthritis in 2015. And I was taught this chronic, deteriorative, irreversible, long-term meds, steroids when you, when you have flare-ups. But she was adamant she didn't want to be in, on those long-term meds. And so we formulated a lifestyle plan together. My brother had some interesting ideas um, around kind of more of the wellness angle. And basically with a lot of lifestyle change, primarily nutritional, Within a few weeks, her, her knuckles went from purple, swollen, really stiff in the morning to, to, to pretty much normal looking. It was, it was extraordinary wow. and nothing I'd learned about before. Now, I appreciate that whole rheumatology world is a, is a world of, you know, a spectrum of diagnoses and it's not easy to, to draw massive conclusions out of it. But what that did illustrate is, is what the possibilities could be with more of those, those lifestyle interventions that we don't learn enough about at men's school. Um, so I, I went into foundation training, carried on like to understand more of what that frontline, what experience is. Um, there's a lot of firefighting. I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to be as creative in, in solving kind of the bigger picture problems that, that I was facing. Um, and some, some people have managed to, to, to hold both very strongly uh, together, but I, I felt that I needed a bit more freedom to, to, to explore that creative side. So after F2, I, uh, I decided to take a step back and split my time across a few things. So I started an online e-clinic focused on optimizing lifestyle, so nutrition, exercise, mental health, sleep, and relationships in order to try and help people best manage long-term conditions that they have. Uh, and then later down the line, I started to uh, lecture on a course in digital health at the University of Warwick. And so that's an exciting thing to be involved in because uh, we're basically educating the first generation of NHS digital healthcare scientists, which is this whole new role. We're still defining exactly what it is. I have some ideas of what I, I think would be most beneficial. Um, but but that's a, it's, it's a good sign of the times in which we're heading. I think there's going to be some more dedicated experience in terms of who's got clinical as well as tech training. And then I, I also spent some time with a company called Autos Eye Health, who uh, you probably know, James, because they're on the accelerator while I was mm. with them last year. What we were doing was running virtual clinics across, uh, across our platform, and we managed to scale that up to, it was about 20 when I joined, and then it was 80 patients per month when uh, I ultimately left. And this is pre-COVID, so actually at the time, as far as we knew, that was one of the largest, if not the largest, virtual clinic program in the UK which is exciting to be involved with. But really in, in trying to develop all of those pathways across cardiology, endocrinology, cardiothoracics, general surgery, uh, GI oncology, there was a lot of learning in terms of how, how this technology needs to be applied, right? So you've got clinicians who know that something needs to be done to support their patients on an ongoing basis, but they don't know the technology enough. And then you've got your IT staff who are managing support all day long, so they don't really there's never really that dialogue of who knows both and can bridge that gap. So a large amount of what we had to do in terms of making sure the clinical adoption was there is working with clinicians to understand 
what's the pathway as it currently is for these patients? What are the pain points? And then actually, how can we make the technology work against those pain points in a really effective way? Uh, and then more recently, building on uh, what I've been doing in my online clinic, Hippocrates Lounge, I'm, I'm looking to, we're creating a platform to support employers with uh, optimizing employee well-being and really taking that from just this well, nice to have well-being kind of concept to actual preventative health. It's an awesome background, man. And like, there's so much that I want to, I want to talk to you about. I think the first thing that I want to ask you about is your kind of exploration into the health tech world when you were basically having those 70 meetings with startups and accelerators and kind of trying to figure out what indeed the health tech world is. That's really interesting to me because that's essentially what I did too. I figured out that I wanted to innovate. Mm -hmm. I figured out that, that a way to get it done would be to to help the processes in a hospital be more efficient that led me towards mm. thinking technology is a better way of doing it and then you kind of hit this wall don't you of like what now <laughs> yeah who, who do i ask like what what website do i go on to find who can help like and all of a sudden you end up in, yeah. in the abyss really and mm -hmm. I, I did exactly the same thing as you which was tried to piece it together myself one thing you mentioned was the lack of well-trodden path and it's mm -hmm. interesting that you've then actually, you know, tried to build the world that you wanted originally by, you know, with the stuff you're doing at Warwick and creating that, 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 that path mm -hmm. where people are, are now treading. But it's interesting that there wasn't this well-trodden path certainly at all before. It still doesn't really exist now. There is more structure. There are specific health tech VCs. There are specific health tech accelerators. There are specific ways and, and, and I suppose processes and things that are the right ways to build health tech startups now there's clearer things around the ways to generate evidence there's clearer things about user-centered design all these different things but mm. when we were doing this there really wasn't much there so uh, tell me about that exploration i'm interested in what you were what you were trying to get out of it what you did end up getting out of it what your learning was and you know did that then spur you on to do anything else like the warwick stuff later on mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think one of the first things that I think is worth acknowledging at this at, uh, in the context of this is I think we're very much in that structure that we go through in med school, right? Everything's about getting us to that minimum standard of competence that we're going to practice safely. Mm -hmm. And in that context, you're not really thinking about, you know, that you, you're not always able to think about what's, what can I do over and above? What can I do to change how this works for the better? Not Not because there isn't that desire to do so but because there's so much learning that has to focus on those bits and so when i was trying to think a little bit more out of the box my reference points were quite it didn't feel like they're immediately obvious to me and that can feel almost like that culture clash between okay i want to do something innovative that might require me to do something private privately oriented am i going to be judged for uh trying to trying to go down that path is there a way i can merge these worlds in an effective way mm -hmm. and or is that just me being, you know, overly worried about a cultural problem that may not exist. I don't know. You can second guess that stuff all day long. But that, that's some of the kind of issues that are arising in terms of the thought pattern. Um, then when it came to the exploration in the States, I figured there's much more of a, because everything's private, everyone's kind of incentivized along the same lines. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of problems with incentives in healthcare. We could do a whole other episode on that. If we want, if you wanted to, but <laughs> whatever your opinions are on the healthcare system, the reality is of having more business alignment with healthcare system and healthcare innovative incentives. There's a, there's more of a culture of that innovation or clinicians having businesses. As far as I understood it, I, I think it, I think there probably are a lot more NHS clinicians than I understood at the time that do have businesses. Um, certainly, med tech more than digital health, I would say, but it wasn't as prominent or or obvious and so in going to the states it really was a blank slate i didn't have an idea of what exactly i needed to get out of it the, the intention for that for that time which i failed to follow through on was to to really try and pull together you know there's all of this innovation going on that people talk about right i don't know if you remember i remember hearing a lot about a company called proteus who had that bluetooth enabled mm. pill and that was supposed to be the savior for adherence and yet i you know no no one knows anyone that's used it in, in any circle that i've been in and that that can that problem still i think is there in a lot of a lot of health tests it's a huge today. problem huge problem the adherence problem but also i think when you ask people like which 
which bits of health tech have you used or understood or that's helped you? How many people in your own circle have actually benefited from it? And I get that there's so many barriers to getting there, but it, it just feels like there's, I, did, I couldn't see how it was going to come together in this futuristic healthcare system. And I yes. think we've got more medical futurists now trying to pull that vision together, but it wasn't clear. Like I felt like I needed a sense of what does, what does a health tech enabled healthcare system actually look like if you pull together all of the key components that, that need to exist. And it's a, it's a massive rabbit hole. I think the, the reality of why I couldn't, I couldn't ultimately get my head around all of that to output something was it was, it was a lot of different things in a lot of different places that, it doesn't always feel like you can you can pull it together in one coherent system. That's not to say it can't be done, but I think it's an evolving picture, and I appreciate that a lot more now. But what that did show me is that I think there's a there was a lot I came to understand in terms of what the path might look like if you were to start if you were to go down the route of your own startup, and that 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 was quite helpful because it was it was more kind of it, you know when you're in med school you're surrounded by med students and clinicians who have done the same thing that you're looking to do. I didn't have any sort of reference point. So I could start to piece together a little bit more of what it might look like to go down that road. And then, and then I built more confidence with expressing my ideas. And, and when I did express them to my mentors at university, actually, I've had a lot of support since then. Um, and so I would say that, you know, actually, to be honest, linking it to the Warwick thing that you were, you were saying, actually, the truth of how, how I ended up in that role is that um, my, my main mentor from Oxford, Professor Ashok Hander, he and I have done a lot of academic work on shared decision-making, which is, for those of you who are unfamiliar in that clinical context, evidence-based medicine is supposed to comprise three components, the research, the clinical experience of the person who's, who you're dealing with, but the patient value set is the third one. And that's really only started to be laced in systemically in terms of more recent generations of med students that are trained in communication skills. So we were doing, we, we would do a lot of work on that, but then, his colleagues, who he knew very well in that context, were starting up this new course, and he knew how much uh, I, had, uh, I had been working on this kind of digital health space and trying to understand it. And so that's how the Warwick thing came about, which, uh, and the, again, drawing parallels between the experiences I've had. I think a lot of the experiences I had with autists in terms of building those pathways, working with clinicians, and have, you have to have more of a problem-solving approach rather than rote, learned know-how in terms of how should this technology work for the patients primarily and the clinicians who are here? I could not agree more. And there are so, so many parallels with, with the way that I approach this stuff as well. I, I remember when I went to the, the first accelerator that I ran, the Digital Health at London Accelerator, and I started there not as running the program, I, I ran it subsequently. But when I, when I went in there, I went in with this naive attitude, I suppose, or naive opinion that that's what we were going to do. We were the people that were innovative. We were clinicians. We were across different areas of the NHS management. We were this group of innovative people that had this vision and belief that what we were going to do was, as you put it, merge all of these worlds in a meaningful way. I really like that phrase because that perfectly mm -hmm. explains what we and what I frankly believed that we were going to do and we were going to do it quickly mm -hmm. because it just seemed obvious. You've got these startups over here. You've got the, the people that fund those startups, the VCs and the angels over here. Mm -hmm. And you've got a healthcare system, which definitely needs all of this stuff. And we can communicate with all of those different groups because between us, we have all the languages. So we're just going to mm -hmm. pull this together in this really like easy, lovely accelerator program. That's going to just solve all the NHS problems. And I, I guess I really like what you said about the fact that it's not then just a, a learning thing and it's not, it's, it's a problem solving thing. It's, it's figuring out that actually in all of those different relationships, there are so many nuances. There are so many, whether you call them issues or, or, or I guess hurdles to get over with the way all those different people work, the way they view things the, the types so for example i mean the, the types of startups that investors want to invest in might not necessarily want to be solving nhs problems and vice versa like and, and therefore immediately that throws a massive spanner into the works immediately that you're like oh hold on a minute it might not be financially viable to run this ecosystem the way that we think it should be run to benefit the nhs so like 
and yeah. there are all these different things and also the way that 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 kind of public sector views the private sector that was another one and, and all these different mm. things came about and the, the balancing that ecosystem was very difficult and i felt like at the time as well i felt like i was we were having all of these conversations for the first time it was it was a few years ago now that we were doing this or a fair few years ago now that we were doing this and it seemed that it was in its infancy in kind of the understanding of what startups might even be able to do. And it's like, are you trying to privatize the NHS? We're having all of those conversations. We were really walking this knife edge of mm. trying to merge those worlds, as you put it, in in that meaningful way. And it it was it was tough. It was it was hard to do. But interestingly, it got easier. And I think in the same way that your journey has now led you to the point where you're able to lecture people on that digital health course and you're creating this group of digital health scientists. I think that's a really interesting term and a really interesting definition that I can, that I can explore with you that like it, it, there is a scientific way of looking at this stuff of digital health. There, is, there are frameworks that you can actually use to be like, is this thing going to work in that place? And is it going to actually solve a problem? But there is a science behind that. There is also an art behind that. But there is mm-hmm. quite a huge science behind that, that people can learn and people can figure out. I remember when I read the Topple review, I was like, one bit of it really stuck out of me, which was, which was that, and I'm probably going to butcher this now because it's probably Chinese whispers for the amount of time that I've actually mentioned <laughs> this, but a, a role, a type of person, a, a role that would sit in an organization that understands the technology, that understands the healthcare, that understands the management and can merge all of those worlds together to critically appraise technology as it comes into an organization. It struck me as like, that seems massively like the right thing to do, but how would you train them? And it seems that Warwick might just be onto something with you here, mate, if uh, if I can get you to talk to that bit. Yeah, for sure. So interesting you mentioned the topple review because that is, you know, it's one of the things that, that has led to this, the inception of this course anyway. So. I mean, just to put it all into context and, and elaborate a little bit more, it is an undergraduate course in terms of uh, like where they where the students end up. It's kind of they end up in, in terms of their healthcare uh, credentials, the, the equivalent kind of um, clinical exposure of nurses and physio, but they have more of that digital training. And we, we've approached it. I mean, so it's actually it was the initial brainchild of uh, Lord Bhattacharya, who unfortunately has passed away, but he was a huge name in, in terms of engineering at Warwick. And he, he was always, as I hear, unfortunately, I never got to meet him, but someone who was very creative with those ideas. And then his, his thinking was, well, we've got an engineering school, we've got a med school at Warwick. Why are we not thinking about bringing those expertise together in the context of what is being cried out for as far as health tech goes? Um, and where that's where that's going towards, and what it looks like is, you know, there's we've got we've got these strands of teaching, and across them, we want to have some some fused learnings, and and make sure that there's cross learnings between them. So the strands are what I teach is clinical decision making. So leveraging what I was talking about in terms of making sure there's there's clear alignment between what the research says, what your clinical experience is, but also what the individual in front of you values. Um, then there's well-being, so more of that kind of preventative health angle there's physiology so more of that micro kind of biological science that that we have to dive into certainly in the early stages of of a medical career and uh then there's then then there's more of the digital and some more kind of leadership and uh, coaching skills so it's it's a it's a cacophony of skills that are all relevant and bringing together all of those strands that you mentioned but they're all necessary in order to to facilitate whatever kind of change management is going to be there, uh, as well as hope, hopefully in some instances, the inception of, uh, of the kind of relevant health tech innovations that need to be there. I'd say what I, I, I'm trying to bring to the table in how I teach is some of, I don't think there's that many people who have been able to kind of do pragmatic on the ground um, health tech implementation work and also share those learnings with with students and so a lot of the learnings i had in in that respect on the ground with autism i'm trying to translate that into okay you're going to have you're going to have these groups of clinicians or whoever in, a, in in the hospitals that you end up in and to be uh, to put more context actually it's, it's quite closely aligned with the university hospitals birmingham so the students are on placements there 
as well as you know in ASNs oh, nice. in that in that ecosystem in in the West Midlands, they're, they're in placements that are relevant to health tech more broadly, as well as on the ground clinically. So those problems are going to come up, right? So whereas you and I would have probably identified them and then not feel like there's space to do anything about it, hopefully they'll have enough of, they'll be kind of recognized enough in terms of their digital expertise and also have enough problem solving skill and, and, and kind of a lack, a less fear in terms of how, how I might go about solving this problem as behemoth of a system, <laughs> then uh, I think it can feel like when you're in the context of firefighting. But if there's, if there's a group of clinicians that want to achieve something for a group of patients, hopefully this is where you can start to plug that gap and actually bridge that gap of understanding between clinicians and tech that makes it work for both sides properly and most impactfully. I really love that, man. And one thing you mentioned there was wellness. And that's a, that's a really interesting bit of, I suppose, the health tech space. Mm-hmm. I think for me, wellness is considered the kind of B2C bit, the prevention bit, frankly, the less regulated bit. So less barrier to entry. So lots of startups that are doing stuff. You know, you look at I'm sure, I'm sure if you go on the app, something look at the, the volume of things that are on there in terms of like bits for meditation, bits for better eating, better sleeping, like loads of stuff can fall in there in terms of health tech. What's your view on wellness as somebody that is very much in this space with your kind of holistic uh, clinic online, as well as, you know, all the bits that you're doing with, you know, teaching on this stuff as well. How do you see the wellness space when it comes to health tech? Uh, so I think, you know, in terms of my own story, there's clearly there's clearly a personal thing that I've seen achieve something extraordinary in my own life. And I, I'm trying to look for a way of not only I mean, everything that I'm doing is an attempt to spread those possibilities to as many people as possible. But along that journey, I need to be able to bring some rigor to that. And that isn't that isn't necessarily always there as it is. But I think there's also, and we've got to have an appreciation perhaps of the, the slight differences in, in, in those spaces. So in more of the medical interventions, they're, they're higher risk. And so you, you have to manage that a little bit more appropriately. Whereas is meditation like a risk that needs to be managed as much? I think the level of evidence requirements are to be titrated to some extent to the level of risk uh involved in that intervention right and so i think where i I think that's still an evolving picture i think to some extent where you see with the nice evidence standards framework that they're kind of going that they're they're targeting that more in terms of the level of decision making coming across from the technologies but i also think in terms of what the interventions they're supporting are can be can be thought of in similar veins i would say i would say there is kind of one 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 big big issue is that there isn't a comparable way of looking at all these these wellness apps that are on the app store right besides uh the ratings that are on there and to be honest i mean i've looked recently at a lot of the kind of big big names in the in in the wellness space and some of them are a huge huge outfits but have you know less than 50 60 reviews star ratings that are quite low and so i mean the, the concerning thing is there is that when you're I guess as a reflection of trying to engage not only whoever their client is, but also the end user at the end of it, whether their client is an employer or a healthcare organization, the risk is that you kind of lose the end user on that journey. Um, I think there needs to be more of an impact driven approach to the whole thing. And with that thinking, we need to be, and I don't know if we'll ever get to the point of some sort of standardized outcome metrics that we should be considering, but I know what I'm doing in terms of building my own, my own health tech platform, the foundation of it is using health-related quality of life surveys that are validated already in medical literature that are the kind of things that can be used to do cost utility analyses of is drug A more cost effective than drug B or you know surgery A over surgery B. Uh, that's, that's the approach that I've taken and that's the foundation of it. And I think there's an element of responsibility that comes with, with that territory. If it's going to be, if you're going to administer or an intervention, you should still be, it's in your purview to think about what are the outcomes that I'm actually looking for here and can I make them comparable to what else is out there so that we all know and we're all wiser for it and we're all optimizing ultimately people's health. You've got a wonderful way with words. I think one thing that you said there very near the beginning of your answer was rigor 
in wellness. And I think that really neatly summarizes how I didn't know I felt about the wellness space. And you're absolutely right that there are some things that are clearly scientifically validated that clearly make a difference. There are, but there are many ways to skin a cat, I suppose. And I, I suppose mm. apps are one way of doing that stuff or getting that learning across or educating the person or delivering CBT or whatever it is. But there are plenty of other ways of doing that stuff too. And it seems like the other ways often get that scientific rigor or it feels more rigorous to go and see a person that delivers that CBT. But then as soon as it ends up in the app space, there might be people yeah. that are doing it very well. You know, you point to the likes of big health and and those people that, that seemingly do that stuff well. But then I suppose, but for every big health, you've got people that aren't doing that so well and that aren't doing that with that same amount of rigor in wellness because the barrier to entry is so low. And I think that does take away from the fact that what really we're talking about in wellness is preventative medicine. We're talking about things that you can do for your health that keep you healthy, that prevent you from descending into ill health and poor health and being unwell, whatever you want to call it. And it's, I suppose, it's a funny space, I think, in health tech, because it, it seems to be B2C mainly. Yes, there are B2B examples taking big health, you know, selling to employers in the US and coming back round to the, you know, the NHS and it's now prescribable through the Healthy London Partnership and all those things. It's it's doable, but it seems to be that the responsibility for keeping oneself healthy does fall on the individual. And you can argue both ways as to how, you know, whether that's right or wrong or how much that should certainly be the case. But it seems that individual responsibility is a thing. It seems that that, that is a case. It does end up being B2C. Um, but as a result, I, I think what you're pointing to is the fact that there should be this kind of level of standards that doesn't necessarily exist or barrier to entry that doesn't necessarily exist. And I kind of feel that the wellness space is losing something because of that, because it, the good things are diluted in, in the not so good. And you point to examples of big companies that are potentially not doing things that are so good as, and perhaps smaller ones that are doing things that are so good and actually have that focus on evidence and standards and, and scientific rigor and all those things. It just seems to be a funny space to me for those reasons. I think, I think the funny thing about that is that, is that the truth of the matter is we don't know if we don't know what's effective and what's not. And that is concerning, but you could have, you could have, you know, an app made by some, some random person who's just decided to get on their laptop during lockdown that may be delivering better CBT than big health for all we know right hypothetically sure but we don't really know because i mean it's it's yet another barrier to add into the many that already exist in the health tech space which is the research angle and you and i have familiarity as clinicians because we we're encouraged to take on acad academic work but that that familiarity doesn't exist for people who are just trying to support other people to achieve something that they achieve right you have plenty of examples in the marketplace of individuals who have done something for their own chronic conditions and want to be able to share that with other people because it took them so long to achieve that. And they very, they very strongly believe in what they achieved. Now there's, there's this delicate balancing act that needs to, and it's not, it's not a simple thing and everyone's going to feel more or less comfortable with, with, with wherever along the line they go with this. But I think there's this, I think there's this almost paradox or this, this tension between trying to, I mean, everything we do in medicine is to, is to primarily manage risk. All of our evidence is based on minimizing symptoms, minimizing side effects. And we don't tend to look at where those extraordinary outcomes have occurred and to understand why those have occurred. Right now, you know, true scientific curiosity would lead you to, to explore both sides of that coin and not just one. Now, on that on that positive side of the coin where people are having all these extraordinary outcomes, if we knew why we should we should be able to then test that and see where that takes us. And oftentimes I think that's more in this kind of lifestyle and behavioral change space where there's kind of ethical and logistical things that limit the level of evidence you can ever generate. But actually there's no reason why any of those wellness solutions in that space can't have the right kind of monitoring that comes along with it, but the, you know, with leveraging the tools that are already out there, surveys that are already validated, for instance, in order to in order to bring some level of rigor uh, and comparable outcome i think is a big thing the comparability of the outcome because it's all well and good saying you know everyone on my program is now no is now no longer depressed but you could have done phq nines and quantified that whole thing 
and ultimately uh, straight away it's more objective right so that's it, it there's a there's a bit of tension there i think where wellness is trying to go is you know how healthy can you be whereas a lot yes. of what health tech wants to do or has to do and the reason it's regulated is because to minimize the damage of disease and so i think there's going to be a blending of of those kind of layers of thinking that needs to occur in the next probably decade realistically although there are kind of more thought leaders coming out on on what the what the positive sides of those coin that that coin is so tell me now then how all of this plays into the Hippocrates Lounge and what you're doing with that. Yeah, so I mean, so the approach at a kind of one-to-one clinic level is all about let's let's sit down with people and figure, like, actually take time, which we don't normally have in the context of uh, of a healthcare system that's got strained resources. Let's take time to understand what what is the long-term story of this person's health state, but what are their goals and why. And that's something that doesn't actually get asked. We're not taught to ask that. It doesn't really come into, we, we talk about ideas, concerns, and expectations, but it's a cursory question that you, you ask at the end of the rest of your history taking. Now, the reality is for, for one person with arthritis in their knee, they want to manage that pain so that they can continue to garden for the rest of their retirement. But for another, it's to play with their grandchildren for the foreseeable and that may you know in the context of whether you wanted to go down the route of knee replacement or not gardening may limit uh you know the mobility that, that a knee replacement can offer you may, may not be enough for gardening so though that's kind of the thinking that it's lacing that shared decision making that i mentioned into the into the very fabric of of that journey the rest of it is actually very much trying to track all of those things you know nutrition exercise mental health sleep how how things are with your relationship and to foster that, uh, that ability for individuals to monitor that themselves. And really over time, what, what you're generating is greater self-awareness and ability to recognize uh, when things are going awry. And then even a sense of, you know, okay, let's say I, over the course of a couple of months have been, I've been, I've been worried about having depression. I've been monitoring my PHQ-9 every three weeks. And when I've been meditating, I've noticed there was a downtrend but in the last two weeks, just because things have been hectic, I'm, I'm off. And now my PHQ-9 has gone up. Like that's a feedback loop that any individual can have. And I think is not being leveraged enough. So it's kind of leveraging PROMS, patient reported outcomes from the earliest stages, as well as, uh, as, well as coaching um, in order to try and optimize outcomes. Now, part of the reason for doing that and having the measuring instruments up first is that we don't know exactly what might have the most extraordinary outcomes in any definite sense, especially as far as like nutrition and stuff goes. So really what we're, what we're enabling people to do is they might not have the perfect answer for what the intervention should be, but they do have a mechanism of measuring what is going on and how it responds to any intervention they choose to take in the context of their life, their lifestyle, their health goals. And then, so, I mean, that's very much what the clinic approach is. And then what I'm trying to do with that now is to, is to scale that. Um, working with employers reason being uh, primarily when you think about the determinants of health outcomes 80 percent of it is health behavior it's physical environment it's socioeconomic circumstances and yeah for james and i it's a bit disheartening to to have learned that only 10 percent of it is down to clinical care and the rest of it is mm-hmm. is biology now when you think about that we spend a third of our lives at work where's the best context in which we can even make any of these healthy behavioral changes it's, it's going to be at work. And so that's the context in which I believe that we can have the greatest impact in terms of preventative health. And I want to bring that kind of rigor, that, that, that empowerment of the individual, but that contextualizes the ability to track, build on your own interventions if you need to, because ultimately patients need to make the, I think when you're talking about individual responsibility, there's, there's, only, there's, a, there's a limited extent to which we'll ever be able to do that for the patient in front of us, right? And we've been talking about patient-centered care for many years in healthcare, but I don't know if, uh, if we really understand what that looks like. I think that looks more like trying to educate patients in terms of how to understand what their options are. And that may not be exactly as we see it. Um, and then creating a, a sort of support mechanism or, or an ability to, to, to recognize when things are not going so well or when, th- or when things can be improved. 
And that continuous improvement loop is something that can benefit them in the context of that health goal or any other, any other thing that should arise in the future. It's funny to me that it seems that this almost begs the question, where does health tech just become health? Because ultimately, I suppose you're using technology to build a platform that allows you to do an e-clinic and, and, and that type of thing, I guess. But ultimately, what you're, what, I don't want to say preaching, but what you're kind of, what, what you're teaching, what you're learning, what you're doing, what you're helping with is essentially just optimizing people's health. You're just doing that through an electronic platform, which makes it, I suppose, digital health. What you're not doing is preaching that the way to better health is through technology, through all these new innovative bits and bobs, I think anyway. I don't know whether you are yeah. saying that. And it's, it, I don't know, it's just interesting to me that, yeah, where does, where does health tech just become health? I, I, think, uh, I think it's a really great insight there on, on how I approach things. I think, look, health, health exists independent of technology. It did before, it will continue to. And what the reality is of health is that it's not because you check off that I meditated today on an app that the meditation is benefiting you, right? I can take off anything on an app and it doesn't mean anything unless I'm really benefiting. So I think, I think technology and apps and so forth, they're a means of communication and optimizing the kind of flow of all of that information bi-directionally. But really in this, in this context, in wellness, what you're trying to achieve is behavioral change and hopefully enabling behaviors that are going to optimize health outcomes. So that's the entire approach where technology facilitates that, whether it's via a video call or some sort of tracking mechanism. And it doesn't have to be the smartest thing in the world, right? It could be an Excel spreadsheet to track. It could be <laughs> you know, Zoom to do the video call. It doesn't have to, like, you should only use what is necessary in order to achieve the goal, right? We, you know, in, in med school, I was taught very clearly. And one of the things that's always stuck with me is, is don't, don't measure things that you're not going to change. And so it, it's kind of a similar thing, which is use what is necessary to achieve the end goal, not just technologize because technology is there. I think there's a huge risk in, in terms of health tech that certainly in terms of, I, I know there's huge potential in terms of a lot of the kind of buzzwordy technologies that are out there, AI, blockchain, et cetera. But there's a real risk that we focus on applying technology for the sake of it because it exists to health without ever really thinking what's the outcome we're going to get here. And just to take that back to how we're approaching the whole thing with, with working with employers, ultimately everything's about behavioral change. So the way we, the way we focus on it is we've got those... Uh, tracking mechanisms in terms of health outcomes, the kind of surveys I mentioned before. And then we're breaking down, we've created a kind of program to break down what everyone's talking about as quarantine fatigue, but it's those early symptoms of social isolation that could lead, lead later to depression. But we also know that isolation leads to uh, poorer health outcomes, particularly in the context of cardiovascular outcomes. And so it's a case of what kind of, what, how is that affecting you right now? Some people are being affected in terms of stress, irritation, racing thoughts. Uh, some of Un, like demotivated, not being not being productive. Some are struggling with sleep. Some are struggling with increased appetite. Some are uh, struggling with reduced appetite. Now, what we need to be able to do is to create, f figure out who's got those problems. You can you can use simple surveys on an app to figure out who's got those problems, and then funnel relevant information to them. Which is, in in our case, e-learning around the relevant habits that can help you deal with that problem. So let's say it was, it was sleep. Um, and maybe CBT is kind of something that we can signpost them to. So the content that I then deliver is, is a short video to, to explain why it might be relevant with the evidence is and the habit that you, you can then consider as an individual to take up. And then it's just a daily checklist kind of thing. And I think what, one of the things that, I mean, we, you and I have been talking about is to what extent you can have uh, a focus on technology when we're concerned about the effects of technology on people right now, yes. Zoom fatigue, everything with the social dilemma, et cetera. I mean, what I can say in terms of how I'm trying to approach things is we're trying to enable the habit tracking and the habit formation, but not, not more than, you know, taking things off on that daily checklist, which is always going to be, you know, I, I mentioned the kind of just because you've ticked meditation off doesn't mean anything. But if you twin that up with the regular outcome tracking, 
then I think, I think there's an opportunity there to create the self-awareness. The other thing with it is that actually there's a responsibility with it. You know, even one of the e-learning things on, on our platform is about, do you know where the nightlight settings are on your phone so it's not going to mess up your sleep? Do you know how to turn on focus mode so that you only get, uh, you're limited to five minutes of social media on, on each given app? Right, those are things that exist. They're not immediately obvious to everyone. I've done it. I don't know. I don't know how many other people have. Uh, and so, when the WHO is saying at the beginning of the uh, lockdown that be careful about social media exposure if you're feeling overwhelmed with it, uh, and also data from Wuhan since there's a study that I saw of almost five thousand people that had a positive correlation between social media exposure and depression and anxiety diagnoses. Now, if that's the case then we've kind of got to factor that in, even if it means encouraging people from the app to stay off their phone. I think there's a, that's the responsibility that comes with the territory. Yeah, there's a couple of things there. The, the first one is that I, I really like how we've basically got to the, to the point of saying that actually, when it comes to health tech and wellness, actually, or health and tech in wellness or whatever, the, the point is, what we're really trying to get to is the behavior change. That's the bit that we're trying to get to. What it seems that we've decided is that technology is a way of us delivering that. It's the mechanism that either gets us there, starts the habit, allows us to track it, and just increases the likelihood that we'll get to the end goal, which is actually the wellness. I suppose the other thing, and particularly when you talk about you guys teaching this stuff, is how to actually adopt the technology that we use on a daily basis for everything to enable more wellness and to enable more health by things like, as you say, adapting the blue lights and making sure that you're tracking it so that you don't use it as much if it is indeed contributing badly. But it's interesting that all of this does come back to the awareness of oneself and the awareness of how all the technology is impacting us and how it could then be used in our favor to, to push it the other way. It seems that when you look at things like the social dilemma, there's almost this acknowledgement that we're passive to the effects of what technology is going to do to the human race. And that, you know, we're just sitting ducks waiting for it to just, you know, mine our brains for all of it, all of their power in our bodies for like electricity. I don't know. And it, but it, see, it seems like th that we can empower ourselves to turn this around to actually use technology in our favor. And when you think of it in the context of wellness, it's not as if there's a piece of technology that's going to change things. It seems to me that from this discussion, I've realized that really it's the technology that's going to give us some information that we then need to act on to create behaviors that enable mm -hmm. better health and to prevent issues down the road it's completely different when you talk about clinical care and you talk about a new device that can be used in an operating room that's going to help mm. things or you know a piece of software that's going to process people quicker through the system or you know prevent do not attends and help out patients it's different when you talk mm -hmm. about that sort of stuff but it seems that in wellness we need to get to that point of behavior change it seems like yeah for sure i think with with any of it you've got to be very clear on you know where am i what's where am i going from and where am i trying to get to you know when you talk about the operation side of things it's maybe you know i've got uh, a risk of perforation with this device of 23 percent. but if we make these slight modifications it can go down to 15 right that's the aspiration but ultimately that's because you're trying to you're trying to better the outcomes for those operations for those patients so you have to be able to step back out into what am i actually trying to achieve not what is like what you could easily in that example just focus on like continuously optimize the material of that yeah. of that device but that if that doesn't lead to the outcome for the individual patient and for all we know like you, i don't know if you've watched the bleeding edge on netflix now i appreciate you know netflix documentaries not always the most rigorous thing I, I, they, they are what they are but we we sometimes don't know until years later what the effects of these things are uh, and we can focus too much on on the mechanism rather than the overall goal and the overall goal should should be guiding what the mechanism needs to be i think is the primary thing that i'm trying to say there when you talk about the concerns that the social dilemma raises and and kind of this idea of whether we're we're passive or passengers i think there's a few themes there that, that, are, that are really important to consider i think when we talk about kind of social media exposure there's lots of good things that have come with it but obviously these risks are there 
to what extent those risks are, you know, are as bad as the social dilemma points out, I think is important to take note of because the potential, the, the potential is that huge. But I think when you when you take a step back and you look at technology more broadly, any technology that comes with that level of risk requires a license. You know, you don't you don't get to operate unless you've got a medical degree and done significant amounts of postgraduate training. You don't get to drive a car unless you've learned how to drive and pass the test. Now, the funny thing about mobile phones is that I had my first one at 11 years old and there was no barrier. There's no there's no need to understand what it might do. And certainly that transition to smartphones didn't encourage any of that either. And we're sort of kind of chasing our own tail with some of that, I think. Ultimately, when we, when we then think about whose responsibility it is, all we're, like, in that whole behavioral change piece that we're talking about, there's, there's an extent for, for anyone on a, on a health journey or I guess any other journey where there's, there's, it can apply to other elements of life too. But there's an extent to which there may be expertise external to you to it, that, that you need to bring your level of understanding up to, but actioning it is always, is always you. And so we can't, we can't really pretend that just because we put something in front of someone, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a huge amount of difference. And so as much as, you know, the social dilemma talks about these habits where people are socially disengaged as a result of being on social media too much, being dependent on likes, comments, and all the rest of it, there's an opportunity to also create habits of encouraging, you know, people sitting around the table, having, having mealtimes together as a family. You know, there's, there's good links between um, in, in the literature between having more of that kind of social and dedicated mindful mealtime and making better food decisions, having a reduced calorie intake as a result of that. And so those are the smaller things that we need to start pushing the technology to, to encourage people towards uh, of, of their own volition, of course. Like I think there's, I, come, I would come back to the kind of theme of the shared decision-making there is what's the, we can relay at scale through technology as a means of communication, what the evidence is, what the clinical experiences are, and then it's up to the individual what they would like to take on in the context of their own life, their own values and their own lifestyle. I love that. And I love the fact that you've got this kind of central principle and I suppose this North Star of that shared decision making. It seems like that professor that you mentioned has had a real profound effect on you and, and what everything that you're doing now. And it seems like that learning that you did at that point, you kind of realized that this can apply to so many things. And I would agree because I think the way that it dovetails with what's going on now with technology in health tech and wellness, but then also when you look at social media and mental health and and what technology is doing there, it seems that having this, this guiding principle that allows for individual agency as much as it also allows for responsibility as well as guiding and nudging to the right decisions. It's difficult to find a framework actually that includes all those different things. But the one that you've mentioned there in terms of that shared decision-making, I mm. think is important. And just so I've got it again, what were the three components of that shared decision-making? So the, the evidence and the research, the clinical experience, and the patient value set. I think but that's an interesting one, isn't it, that third one? That's exactly the point. So evidence, like when we talk about evidence-based medicine, the first book published on it talked about all three of those things, right? But our focus is always on the research and the clinical right. experience, and it hasn't been enough on the patient value set. And so, you know, I, I don't know to what extent... I mean, we went to med school at different times, but I had a lot of communication skills training, but that's mm. not the case for a lot of senior clinicians. And the reason that, I mean, the whole shared decision-making thing has got a decent amount of literature that it does improve, uh, it does improve outcomes in different contexts. It's still early stages relative to other things, but NICE are committed to making that a core part of their guidance. So that should tell you the level of evidence that already exists. So it is, it is an important thing to, to always remember. There's an individual in front of you and they're going to make their own decision. Sometimes patients just don't want to do, you know, <laughs> rather, than, rather than having them ignore your advice when they get home and not take their statin because it's going to give them muscle ache, wouldn't you rather they just told you at the beginning and you could come up with a plan together? Absolutely. Yeah, it's just, it's just this balancing act between, there's an, there's, a, there's an extent to which every patient's kind of on this journey between, and there's a scale for this that's come out in recent years that the NHS is quite big on called patient activation. And it's this idea, it's a scale from an individual who's totally passive in their health, the doctor says what they say, they probably don't end up adhering to their treatment plan, 
all the way through to someone who's not only doing everything that they need to for their own health, but they're going out learning more, they're an advocate for their health, they're educating others on what might be possible. And I think that's, that's such a massive tool that we're not leveraging enough. The reality is for most conditions that I treat as a doctor, I've not had them. And there's a limit to which I can understand what it really does day to day and what the slight, slight differences are in you know, day to day things that occur to that individual that might, might make it easier or, or more difficult to cope with um, the, the, the difficulties of those conditions, right? Like for all I know, some, you know, when my mom had her arthritis at the worst point in time, like the slight difference in the temperature around the house might have been a big deal, but you don't, you don't foster those learnings by, by never giving those patients a voice. Absolutely, man. So listen, what's, what's next for you and what's next for, I suppose, Hippocrates Lounge, what are you trying to do there? What, what are your aspirations in this space and what's the kind of, what world do you want to see us live in next? Uh-huh. Big, big question. I think, um, <laughs> the reason I ask you, so I feel like you're going to try and contribute to it. I think that's the, that's the kind of, that I suppose <laughs> the framing of that. When I've tried to, when I've tried to create a mission statement, I think a lot of it centers on, I want to, I want to be able to support as many people as possible to achieve extraordinary health outcomes and be able to share their stories. Right. I think we're ultimately social beings and the stories are really important that other people can understand them. I think we're always a bit scared to share anything that might uh, be overly extraordinary or set unrealistic expectations. And there is a responsibility that comes with that. But I think the philosophy is, is hopefully there to see in how I'm thinking about things, which is these things are possible. Let's learn from them. Let's create a framework where it's safe to do so, but also continuously improve in the context of those continued learnings. The space moves so fast, so we need to be able to navigate it as clinicians, as health tech providers, but we also need to facilitate all of our end users in order to navigate that too. I think in terms of applying that to Hippocrates Lounge, we've, we're building our MVP, we're very close to that in terms of the employee health platform. To be honest, given that our first program is targeting this whole quarantine fatigue thing, we're, we're, we're gonna open that out B2C anyway. So um, the aspiration there is that there's this dire need right now with people adapting to remote working, social isolation, and rather than let that become depression and anxiety hypertension and i know i know the hypertension thing is real because my grandma has had hypertension come out of nowhere since lockdown so wow. that's the that's a, a definite factor and it's 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 in the literature but i think so rather than let that get worse really what we're trying to do is to support as many people to to get ahead of that quarantine fatigue and whatever the, the potential health outcomes of that are going to be um so yeah looking for looking for employers to pilot with uh, looking for any, as many people as we could support with with that whole uh, notion right now through through healthy habit formation i love it man um thanks so much for coming on i honestly have really really enjoyed this conversation with you dude i think there's so much in health tech and wellness and it's it's a it's a strange space it's an interesting mm. space for all those reasons and i think more well-trodden paths like what you're trying to achieve with Warwick, creating people that understand all these things play together, creating more, I suppose, not necessarily standards, but I guess the opportunity for the right, the right interventions to raise to the top. I think all those different things will really have a good effect on the space. I think we're getting there. I think, you know, with people like yourself that are, that are really driving this stuff from, from, I was going to say the clinical angle, but it's actually all angles. You've got a, you've got an idea of the academia. You've got an idea of the clinical, you've got an idea of the innovation. And it's like what we talked about with the top review, you know, the people that understand all those different things can end up having a really big impact because they can communicate with all sides and they can help oil the wheels to get us mm-hmm. to that point going full circle where we can merge all of those worlds in a meaningful way. And I think that's what we're actually trying to do. It's what I've been trying to do since digitalhealth.london and I'm still trying to do now through communicating different things. And it's seemingly what you're trying to do with Hippocrates Lounge and all the bits that you're doing. And so I honestly wish you every success, mate. I, I really do. And I think, I think you certainly will get there and no doubt that you and I will stay in touch and we'll get you back on in uh, a few months to tell us how it's all going. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to share my thoughts with you. Uh, to, to also share the kind of insights on the journey as well like you said I, I mean I'm really humbled when you say that I'm someone who's bringing together uh, potentially those worlds in a meaningful way and, and, and supporting that whole that whole journey because I don't think it's uh, 
I mean, there's a, there's a good amount of sacrifice that goes into into mm. trying to merge those worlds. Um, so yeah, hopefully it's gonna it's gonna amount to that meaningful impact that I'm striving for, and I look awesome. forward to sharing that with you in the future. Fingers crossed, buddy, and we'll get you back on when you've completed it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome, man. Speak soon. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.